Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. No matter how big a Bruce Springsteen fan you are, there are a whole pile of Springsteen songs you've never heard. In fact, nobody has heard them. Because get this, Bruce Springsteen has made entire records, decided they were not up to snuff, and thrown them in the bin. It's clear in the conversation that you're about to hear, one of the things that makes Springsteen so good is his ruthless quality control. Bruce will tell you what really matters to him when he's making an album. I'm Talia Schlinger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Okay, let's get into some music. Have a listen to this. Just a few of the massive hits from Bruce Springsteen, who does this remarkable thing with the songs he writes. They have an energy that takes you all the way out into the stratosphere, but what he's singing about is totally down-to-earth and relatable. Bruce Springsteen's approach to rock and roll has inspired so many people, and for his latest album, Bruce decided to dig back to the songs that first inspired him, soul and R&B songs. He covered 15 of them for an album called Only the Strong Survive. And when it was released, Tom Power got to chat with Bruce Springsteen. Here's their conversation. How are you? How are you? Very good. Uh, lovely, lovely record. Um, and here's what I understand about it, is that you made another record during the lockdown and you scrapped it. And then, yeah. you, then you made this one. Is that right? Yeah. Sometimes I have a process where sometimes I make records to make other records <laughs> in that uh, uh, I knew I was going to go to work trying to find some music that I wanted to sing that I hadn't written myself. And so uh, I made it through one record, wasn't quite right. And then I latched on to uh, a couple of soul songs. And when I, when I, uh, when I uh, when I started singing those, something happened and it, you could feel that there was some life in it. And so I pursued that and ended up, uh, let me see, uh, 55 songs, 15 songs we used, 40 are on the ground. <laughs> that's a lot. So you, so you recorded a lot. So there's, this, there's another Bruce Springsteen album somewhere that's just gone. You just got rid of it. It's probably a couple of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why? Do you mind if I ask why? Is it, is, it, is it a gut thing? Is it just like this isn't the right? Because I know you're a bit of a perfectionist, right? Yeah, I, I do that often. I've I've got tons of outtakes. And uh, so I'm working on projects, obviously, to get that music out also. But uh, it, it sometimes it's just part of my process. You know, I need to go in, I need to make the record, hear it before I know, okay, this is me at my best. 
This is me at my second best. This is me not very good at all. And uh, and so I'll I'll take my time and and until I get a group of songs where I feel like, yeah, I'm bringing something to this material and this works as a whole, as an album. And uh, uh, so I've got my criteria that, that, that I wait, uh, uh, I wait to make sure that I'm accomplishing. It's nice to know that even at this stage in the career, I mean, you're, you're, you're a bit into it now and you've kind of done a lot. Like you do, <laughs> you, I, I don't want to break it to you, but you, you did all right for yourself. Um <laughs> It's nice to know that you won't compromise still, you know? Well, there's no reason now, you know, if there ever, there never was really. I mean, I always used to think that I used to run into my pals and go, oh, I got to get my record out by, like, for what reason? <laughs> by November, by January, by, you know, I got to get on tour. You know, I always thought none of those things are true. You don't have to put a record out. You don't have to get out on the road. All you have to do is make sure the day you release that record, nobody cares how long it took you to make a bad record. <laughs> nobody cares at all. All they care about the day of that record release is, is that record any good or not? And if it took you two years or if it took you two days and I've made records in four days and I've made records in three years, all that matters is that you made the record you want, you're at peace with it. And that it's a good record when you put it out. Why do you think you have that perspective and others don't? I know, I know that's a bit of a million dollar question, but any thoughts on it? I always felt like I didn't have a choice to compromise. You know, I said my talents were such where I felt I had to be using them at their peak to be anywhere nearly as good as I wanted to be. You know, I said, I can't, I'm not comfortable putting out my second best or this, or it's okay, or it'll do till next time. Uh, I never felt I was good enough to just throw records out there like that. I needed to be at my best at my peak, doing my best work, making my best decisions before I put a record out. Then I could go out and confidently tour for two years, three hours a night behind that music. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I heard that, though, in reading your memoir and in the lead up to this record, that you were not delighted, we'll say, with your vocals in the past, or it wasn't something you focused on in, in the past. And I want to talk about that in the context of this record, that you wanted to put your vocals front and center. You wanted to yeah. make a big vocal record. But am I right to think that like you're listening to Born to Run and you're going, I didn't sing that very well? That was okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was all right. <laughs> but, uh, and most of the ones that I let out, usually, you know, I got a vocal that I was satisfied with, if not maybe ecstatic about. 
But uh, the, what I was kind of saying in relation to this music was I built my other records around first the song. I got to have the best song I can write. Second, the band and the arrangement. The band has to be killing it, kicking ass, right? On on our and we got to get the right take. And then I got to get the right voice. Voice always came usually last, you know. And so my singing was always at the service of my writing, of my arranging, of my performing. And on this record, I had an opportunity just to choose material that would focus on your voice and on your singing ability, which I really, really enjoyed doing it because, A, I love to sing and, and finding material that was already greatly written, first of all, as all these songs were, uh, but then that I could just tailor to my own vocals. That was a lot of fun for me. It's something different. But you didn't exactly pick, you know, Mustangs. I mean, I love Mustang Sally, but you didn't exactly yeah. pick Mustang Sally and, and, and Soul Man here, you know, even though Sam from Sam and Dave is on the record. Like there's yes, there, there's some deep cuts on this record. I mean, I, I was talking <laughs> to a buddy of mine that do I love you. Indeed, I do that Frank Wilson tune. Someone was telling yeah. me there's like there's only two physical copies of that single around. I think that's true. It was a very rare, rare, rare record that was not a hit in the United States that became popularized through the northern soul scene in England. In England. And a guy named Frank Wilson was the was the producer and singer. Frank Wilson was a very big player in the back line of Motown, but he didn't become a star performer. But he made this record, which was an incredible record. I stumbled across it on some Northern Soul compilation and said, this is a great song. You know, someday, no one knows this record in the United States. I'm going to cut this record one of these days. And so I got a chance to. the feeling of putting your voice front and center in this thing? Is it a different feeling than the records you've made before? Like, I think what I'm curious about is like, is, is it a challenge? Is it a risk? Is it unmooring? Like, is it, is it something to focus on your voice on this record like never yeah, before? It's, it's just fun. I mean, I, I enjoy recording. I record every day. Really? In my, yeah, in my studio. I'm, I'm kind of consecutively making records right now. And uh, uh, I like recording and I like singing. Writing? If I could, if I was writing constantly, I'd probably be writing my own material also, mostly. But but you don't write at, at your command. You know, songs come to you, they stop for a while, they come back. Uh, so in the meantime, I, I said, well, you know, I'd like to keep recording. It was, it was we were in the middle of COVID. There was nothing going on. I've got this huge recording studio on my farm, and I said, I would like to. St I want to stay busy. So I said, well. I'm just going to start singing some things that I really love and see what happens. And so uh ended up with this record. I imagine that you needed to stay busy. I mean, for someone who tours the way you do, I imagine that that during the pandemic, it would be hard to stay still a little bit. I know for a lot of musicians I talked to, it was hard. 
Well, you know, for, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm lucky, you know, we've done well and I'm, I got a beautiful farm and I got my own studio here. And, and, uh, uh, you know, if you had to be locked up someplace, it was a good place to be locked up. The guys that really suffered and that I really fell for are you, were the, your workaday musicians who were depending on their income from those weekly club gigs that completely dried up for years. I don't know how some of those guys made it through, how those men and women made it through because, and I've done that in the past for many years in my own life where, hey, when when Friday came around, I was broke. I had between Friday and Sunday to make what was going to keep me alive from Monday to Friday next week, you know? And so I know what it was like to work week to week to week to week. And if you lost a week, it was catastrophic. So it was terrible for all the real, uh, particularly club club level and, and mid-level working musicians really hard, you know? Uh, me, I just had to find some way to stay busy. But <laughs> back, back when you were doing those club gigs, back when you were a, a, a working musician playing the clubs that way, soul music was a big part of your repertoire back then, right? <laughs> soul Man and uh, Mustang Sally, I've played 10,000 <laughs> times, <laughs> you know. I've played it. So that's why on this record, I said, well, I'm going to move towards things. They're not, they're a, they're a little obscure. Some of them are. Some of them are somewhat well-known. And I just tried to find a balance. So when people came to the project, uh, they weren't hearing just me, you know, singing Mustang Sally. They were hearing Do I Love You or Night Shift or uh, uh, things that were a little, uh, uh uh, that that weren't that familiar. But soul music is a big part of your philosophy, I think. I mean, and maybe I'm reading yeah. too much into it, but like when I see your band, when I see you and you and your band, I see James Brown. You know, I see <laughs> I see the hardest working man in show business. You know, I see someone leaving sweat out on the floor. I I, I found this a concert you did in Stockholm in '81, and you yeah. said you said it seemed like in those songs by the Drifters and Smokey Robinson, there was a promise, and it was just the promise of a right to a decent life. Like soul music is, yeah. is meaningful to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly important American form, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, it's just an, it's an incredible American voice. And, and, and we grew up in an area where the bands that came, we were on the shore. So summertime, everybody flocks to the coast Every show band, soul band, top 40 band, all came to the Jersey Shore to make money in the summer, playing in the summer clubs up and down the beach. So we were inundated with music that had horns and soul music and Motown. And we all grew up singing and playing it from when I was 16. You know, I was learning those Motown records and those soul records. And... uh so there's a big history of it here at the shore and we carry it with a lot of the shore musicians carry a lot of that with them. So is it then that you hear Bob Dylan and you hear like poetry and you hear more like abstract, like meaningful expressionism and you like take that into that top 40 mentality, that Motown mentality? Is that is that kind of it? Yeah, that's what I did. I sort of I said, I'm a creature of top 40 radio. 
You know, I didn't grow up reading. Uh, I didn't grow up, you know, uh, you know, I, I really, I was a guy that, that I learned what I learned from listening to those performers and those wonderful artists that came across the radio waves. And, um, uh, you know, that it filled me with it, the secret of that music was that constantly whispered in your ear. There's another life somewhere. There's a more exciting life. There's a sexier life. There's more fun. There's a party going on. You're not invited to. There's, you know, they're there. They were letting me know all of this was on the airwaves. And so I said, I want to be a part of that somehow, you know? And so I became a musician and, uh, uh, you know, we bring the party with us. So, <laughs> but you, but 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 then it's the it's the Dylan stuff. It's the it's the times they are a change and stuff. Yeah, it's the all of the all of the Bob's lyrics. What they did is I took Bob's lyrics and I sort of put them into uh, rock and roll music. You know, into rock and roll music. I used his 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 lyrical style, morphed it into what I would do, and and blended it with rock and roll music. You know, that was just, I said, I want to make root. I want music where you sing like Roy Orbison, where the records sound like Phil Spector, have the power of Dylan's lyrics. And the whole thing has a physical power of an Elvis record. That was my goal as a 24 year old New Jersey kid. That's what I wanted to do. When did you realize it was working? Like, listen, I've done, I've done, just so you know, like I've done dance, I used to do dance gigs all the time. And I, what I loved about doing dance gigs is that I could play music and I knew if it was working or not by whether sure. people were dancing or not. Like it's, 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 it's always great. You know what I mean? It's like a, com- a comedian. You get laughs, you don't get laughs. That's it. That's your, that's your, but, <laughs> but when do you start realizing, cause people connect to your music on a different level, on a deeper level too. When, sure. when do you start realizing that's happening? Uh, I probably got into it when I was really young because I started to write when I was even in clubs and I saw people start to gather around my own, my own music, you know? And then once again, it was as simple as we were a band. We got up and we played. Did people listen? Yeah. Did they dance? Yeah. Uh, initially we started out as a dance band and then in the late sixties, it became something where, you became more of a concert band where people would come and sit on the floor and listen to what you were doing. And that was, so that was when I started to write a lot of original material. Uh, But I, I, I always drew an audience. And so I knew, and plus I could just internally feel that, that I was onto something, you know, I could feel it in my bones when I played that music, you know, it was kinetic, you know, it it was electric, you know, It, it was a, I knew that I was reaching my audience. But you were reaching them in a, in a way, not to harp on this, but you were reaching them in a way that spoke to their everyday lives. Like it's, it's, it spoke to their own sort of struggles growing up and it's just sort of to the struggles of trying to hold on to a job or something like that. It was deeper yeah. than just, you know, than, than, than dancing, you know? Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to be a fantasist. You know, I, I wasn't a, a, a fan so much of sort of fantastical rock music. I, I was... I said, no, I just kind of want to write about, I wrote about my father's life, yeah. what my life was like growing up, my friends' lives were like, and I stayed in New Jersey. So even well into my 30s, I was I was out in the clubs on Friday or Saturday night, 
And uh, I was pretty much living that life, you know, and that was what I was interested in recording. You know, that seemed important to me. It seemed as a way I kept faith with my uh, with my audience and with my fans. And it was something that I enjoyed documenting. And I thought, well, if somebody would wanted to know what America was like in the second half of the 20th century during the post-industrial, post-industrial times, if you went to my music, you would get a sense of what people were living through at that time. And they stayed with you. They stayed with you yeah. even when you stopped writing about that. I mean, you didn't write as much about that, you know? Yeah. They stayed with you when you started writing more about love. They, started, they stayed with you when you were writing about, about other things, you know? Well, I think, you know, if you write good about anything, yeah. you, you'll, you know, you'll draw an audience, you know, because pe- people's lives are so multifaceted. And uh, uh, but the music, say, on this record I'm making now, it, it's funny. This all of this music had its place because it served many functions. Music doesn't have to be uh, you don't need to ta- have to take as your literal subject work, war, uh, hard times, music, even music that say Soul Man, you know, or Mustang Sally. Uh, it has a way of entering the time period it was created in and addressing the issues of that time, even if it's through just the pure joy of, I'm going to sing along, I want to dance to this. When you think of the Vietnam War, you think of uh, Motown, you think of Creedence Clearwater, you know, all music that was not directly related to writing, a, to taking as their subject, say, say Vietnam, but still whose music when played today brings to life those times. So music functions in a lot of different ways. You know, you can be direct about it or you don't have to be direct about it. You still enter the culture and you pick up the residual of those times. Did you read the Bob Dylan piece in The New Yorker? I can't believe I'm saying that. Did you read that big piece on Bob Dylan that just came out four or five days ago? I don't think I did, no. They didn't talk about you in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. They said, (laughs) I want to to read it for you because I think it's interesting with regards to what you just said. All right. It said, the bargain for Bruce Springsteen is that his magic act is that he'll stay in shape, he'll move like a younger man, he'll sing you his hits, but he'll also salt the performance with newer songs about parenthood, aging, mortality, the work that interests him now, everyone goes home happy, which I think is, is, it says to something that you were willing to, you're willing to change. And if you're there with your audience, they're going to come with you. But you also have to have respect for what your audience is there for sometimes. You do. I mean, I, I've been in situations where I can remember when I wrote, uh, made a record, Tunnel of Love. And this was 1987. I had people come up to me and say, yeah, yeah, I used to like you when uh, you wrote about the cars and the girls, but... Uh, the the love the wedding uh, you, you lost me there you lost me there so you have to be ready <laughs> you have to be ready for conversations with your fans where they go you lost me there because they may find you again when they get older or not, or something you know but you help, you always have to, you got to remain true to yourself and true to the music that that's in your heart and that you want to write you know uh, and that way you've got to believe that you're keeping faith with your audience and that audience is going to keep faith with you. That's that's the deal, you know, and whether it works out or not, that's 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 the uh, operational process. <laughs> Bruce, lovely to meet you. Thanks for thanks for everything. Great to meet you. Thanks a lot. Marvin. 
He was a friend of mine And he could sing his song His heart in every line Marvin Sang of the joy and pain He opened up our minds I still can hear him say What's going on? Say you will sing your songs forevermore, forevermore. Gonna be some sweet songs coming down on the night shift. That's Bruce Springsteen with a bit of his version of Night Shift. Before that, you heard Tom Powers' conversation with the one and only Bruce Springsteen. And how inspiring to hear that somebody at the top of their game like that is still so devoted to excellence. Bruce Springsteen's latest album, Only the Strong Survive, is out now. That's it for this episode of Cube. You can find another episode in your feed today. You'll hear a conversation with the author Sheila Hetty, who has this remarkable way of taking something you think you know and turning it around to make you see it in a whole new way. The topic she tackles in her latest book is really life itself. What if the world around you is just a first draft? You can hear her conversation with Tom Power and also Nisa, a singer and songwriter, artist from Toronto, will set up her new song called Breakup Party. That's all in your feed. I'm Talia Schlanger sitting in for Tom Power. See you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.